Who wrote that song? Anybody knows? Bill Gaither. Bill Gaither, and anybody know the background to the song? During a very turbulent time of our country, and Bill Gloria Gaither's son was just born, and that's when they wrote the song. They're talking about a newborn babe, that's their son in their arms when they wrote the song. So uh, <clears throat> the reason it meant a lot to me was in it's been almost 40 years ago when I was in college, 38 years ago. That was back when you when you typed papers and everything else. We had 18 papers in one semester. And you had to use non-erasable bond, and if you had three three spelling mistakes, it's automatic letter grade. So every time you had to do Travians, you had to put the uh, footnotes at the bottom of the page. And every time you were doing it, so I started one paper over 17 times because you get make open three typing mistakes, jerk it out, start over. And all I had a record player, only had one record in. I kept playing this song over and over. I lay a little like a star over. <laughs> so you never know. Uh, but I think it's interesting when you look at a lot of uh, different songs that we sing, and you often don't think about it. <clears throat> We've been going through a, a series entitled uh, "Living Victoriously in Difficult Times," and obviously, I think we are in difficult times. It reminds me in uh, in 1886, D.L. Moody was holding an evangelistic meeting in Massachusetts and Daniel Towner was his song leader and after some of them had come to know Christ Daniel was meeting with some of them and they talking with them and they were giving their testimony and one young man which we don't know his name has said well what I need to do is I need to trust and obey and Daniel Towner had kept thinking about that those words so he then gives the words to a young man by the name of John Samus. He was a businessman who had just given up a business career to enter the ministry. John Samus then took it, and how much he then wrote the words or put them together, trust and obey. That's the only hymn of John Samus we have in our hymn book, but his most famous was the very first one he wrote. And also, how important would that be for him to trust and obey when you leave in a business career and the security to go into the ministry? You think about it. It's interesting when you look at those words that we have it. And so, what I'm thinking about today is take that very thing, the trust and obey, and apply it to a, a situation we have in Scripture. And you think about it, and we'll look at the background. We'll be in Second Chronicles, trust and obey. I think a lot of times it's very hard. In our own life, we tell everybody else they need to trust and obey, and how many of us have a hard time to trust and obey? Uh, we have no problem telling others. And, uh, first of all, I want to look at the background. Uh, won't cover a lot of it, but I'll just give you a little bit of it. In Second Chronicles 13, if you remember the history, uh, Solomon has passed away, and his son, you remember you have Rehoboam? And Rehoboam makes it a lot more difficult than even Solomon does. So you have a revolt. So Rehoboam gets the southern two, and Jeroboam gets the northern two. And then Rehoboam dies, and his son Abijah takes over in 2 Chronicles 13. And you'll notice in verse 3 you have this battle in which the southern two has 400 men, and the northern tribe has 800 men. Both are calling valiant soldiers. How do you like the odds? 
You have 400 and they have 800. Do you like those odds? If you'll notice when you look down what you have in verse 10 of chapter 13, but as for us, the Lord our God, we have not forsaken him, and the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests, and the Levites attend the work. So he's bringing to mind, the king is, that hey, the grandfather, we're following the Lord, we're doing what we should in Jerusalem. Jeroboam, remember, he comes up with a false religious system, he sets up in Samaria, false priests, all this kind of stuff. So he's bringing it up. Sure enough, they win. But it's interesting in this battle, when they have it, in verse 14, the other opponents have 800,000, you have 400,000, and the 800,000 surround you. They have an ambush. They have people on both sides of you. How would you like those odds? Twice as many men, they're coming at you from two sides, and you're caught in the middle. And you notice in verse 14, they cry to the Lord and they blow their trumpets. And the Lord gives them a miraculous victory because they turn to Him. They trust and obey what they should do. Now that's the grandfather who we want to look at. In chapter 14, you have Asa, his dad. You notice in verse 2, it says, Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord. He does what he should be doing. And so you can kind of think about it, just on that part alone, what type of legacy are we leaving? How many of you have a great legacy from your family? Or whatever it might be. Or if you haven't, how many of you want to start a great legacy? Start at any time. And so he has a good legacy. If you go down to, if you continue down in verse 7, you'll notice what he does. Uh, he does the same thing when you get down a little bit further on in, in verse uh, 7 and so on. Uh, but in the background, notice in chapter 14, notice in verse 11, 9 and 11, you have... Um, Judah has, in verse 8, you have 580,000 men. So in your army, you have 580,000. And in verse 8, you're going up against what kind of an army? Verse 9. You're going up against Ethiopians are invading, and they have how many? A million. A million. How many you like the odds? 580,000 versus a million. And they also have 300 chariots, and how many do you have? Okay. Not very good odds. So what they do is, you'll notice in verse 11, Asa called the Lord, notice the key word there, his God. Different than if you remember with Saul, remember he tells David, please call to your God, not my God, when you look in the second Samuel. And you notice it says in verse 11, the Lord, there is no one beside thee to help in battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord, our God, for we trust in Thee. And Thy name has come against this multitude, Lord. Thou art our God. Let no man prevail against Thee. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians. That's the heritage you have. Your grandfather, for the most part, serves the Lord. Your dad, for the most part, serves the Lord. And it takes you then down to Jehoshaphat. And the background is in chapter 15, if you'll notice in verse 2. So here you have the background of the grandparents and parent. Notice the backbone. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 15, right in the middle. It says, Listen to me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with Him. Critical. When they're with Him, 
in following him and following what he told them to do in the Old Testament, he was with them. And notice, if you seek him, he'll let you find him, but if you forsake him, he'll forsake you. Notice in verse 7, But you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. Same thing that was said to Joshua, wasn't it? Go down to verse 12. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. Exactly what they're told to do. Same thing in Deuteronomy 6. So here you have the backbone. They're going to seek the Lord. He's going to do what he tells them to do. And everything's going well for the southern two tribes. The northern tribes are not following the Lord. And it's not going well for them. So here you have the background and the backbone. But you have problems like you always do. Notice in chapter 16 with his father. Notice what he does is he goes and he makes a treaty, you find in verse 3, with Israel. Did God protect him against the Ethiopians? Yes. So why should you make a treaty with the northern tribes who are not following God? And that's what you're going to find, notice in verse 8 and 9. Were not the Ethiopians and Lumians an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hands. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, and he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. He was going along great. And instead of following and relying on the Lord, he makes a military alliance that he should not have made with a group he shouldn't have made, he's starting to rely on what? Man and not on himself. It's interesting, you look at it, what happens then with his father, he's done great most of his life. Verse 10, Asa was angry with the seer and put him in, in the prison. Wow. The man of God you put in prison. Notice for this, he was enraged at him for this, and Asa opposed some of the people at the same time. And notice the sad part, notice in verse 12, the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not... He didn't seek the Lord, but the physicians. And he ends up dying because of it, but he wouldn't turn. He did a great job for 35 years roughly, but he falls apart in the last six years or so. He doesn't follow the Lord. And it costs him dearly. So here you have the son comes along. He saw his dad, granddad do well, or heard the grand do well, but mess up some. So his dad do great most of the time, and then mess up. And then he stopped and he think about it. How much do we find that where people follow the Lord greatly, and then in the retirement they seem to uh, not follow him? They don't do what they've done so long. It happens so many, many times. With Solomon, you have so many different ones who follow the Lord, but in the end they don't. So we want to think about it. The trust and obey. How many of you find that you have to trust even when you get older? How many of you have enough in retirement? How many of you wonder about all this stuff? It's trust and obey from the beginning all the way to the end. It always is. So stop and think about it. That's going to take us into Jehoshaphat, which is what we want to look at today. So we have his background. We have great granddaddy does well. You have his father who for the most part does well. Although he does have trouble with making alliances, both of them did. Now look at the, uh, the, the beginning then, chapter 17, notice in verse 3. You have Jehoshaphat starts off. 
In verse 3, and the Lord, this is chapter 17, the Lord's with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father's David's early years. Remember, that's critical. David followed the Lord for most of his life. That's why he's called a man after God's own heart, but he does mess up later in his life. He did not act as Israel, the northern ten tribes did. So notice he starts off well, and I think it's interesting. So verse 3 and 4, verse 4, the sought the Lord of his father, followed his commandments, and did not act. So he followed like his dad did earlier, and like David. So personally, he's doing what he ought to do as king. Notice when you get down then to verse 4, in the third year, and you have these several men's names, I won't try to pronounce them for you, I'll let you all do it for me. But notice what he does in verse 9. These men, leaders, they taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, they went throughout all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So personally, the king is following the Lord. He has spiritual leaders go to all of Israel and all the major cities teaching what? The word of God and how they need to follow the Lord. So we have that. And I think it's interesting. And then also when you get down to chapter 19, what he does, he does three things. He has personally, he does it. Second one, he has it proclaimed where everybody can follow the word of God. And look in chapter 19, notice in verse 4. So Jehoshaphat lived in Jerusalem and went out again among the people to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord and the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord who is with you when you render judgment. Now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful of what you do, for the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or taking a bribe. When you get to verse 11, you'll find he splits them up. You have spiritual judges and you have civil judges. So you stop and think, why his beginning? Why is he doing so well? Personally, he's following the Lord. Secondly, he's having the Word of God taught to all the people. And third, judicially, he's having all the righteous people following the Word of God and listening to God. Same thing in our own country. Where are we falling apart at? Leadership. And we're looking at all parties. I'm not trying to blame it on any of them. We have that. Are we teaching the Word of God? And how? And what, what about our judges? So this nation, and Jehoshaphat's doing great. He's following after his father. He has, personally, he's doing it. He's being teaching the Word of God it's to all the people so they know what to do. And he wants the judges to follow it and do exactly what they need to be doing. So you think about it. Why were they having such a great time? Why was the nation doing so well? Our nation's the same one. We do well when we're following the Lord and we don't do well when we don't follow the Lord. Uh, so here, this is the background. But notice then he has some booby traps just like his dad did. Look in chapter 18, you'll see a couple of them. Go back one chapter. He has three alliances that he makes in his long career. The first one is in chapter 18, verse 1 and 2. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. He aligned himself by marriage with Ahab. And what's Ahab's wife's name? So he gives his oldest son, Jerome, to... And he has him marry 
Jezebel's daughter who takes Jehoshaphat's place when he dies. His son who married Jezebel's daughter and what happens then to bringing in the idols and everything else into the into southern two tribes. But why would you make an alliance? You look out history. How many of you like to read history? This has gone on for centuries and centuries. England and France, France and Germany, Germany and Russia. You do it all over. Basically, if I give it, you're my enemy, but I let my daughter marry your son, you're not going to attack me because you're attacking who? So, all right, so they won't do it. But notice you're aligning yourself with what type and what's going to come into your home. So he does it marriage line. Makes sense, humanly speaking, but not. All the things you're setting up, you're now destroying yourself. So it does marriage alliance. In verse 3, Ahab wants to go fight against an enemy, and he asks then Jehoshaphat to join with him. Should he be joining with him? And so Jehoshaphat, which you have to give him credit, says, well, I want to know what the Lord says. And so you have the people who are basically bought off, and they say, well, we need to go fight. He says, well, surely there's somebody who speaks for the Lord. And it's interesting, <clears throat> when you find him, and uh, they find him in verse 15, and the, basically the king doesn't like him because he always tells him what to do and tells him the truth, and he doesn't like it. And how about Ahab? In 15, and the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Notice 16. So he said, I saw all of Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, See, these have no master. Let each one return to his house in peace. What do you tell them about going to war? If you go, what's going to happen? Defeat. The king's going to be killed in battle and they're going to go home. Okay, so if you're Jehoshaphat, did the king, did the uh, prophet tell you what to do? Tells you not to go. But Jehoshaphat doesn't listen and he goes. That's interesting. Ahab disguises himself, thinking he can be protected. And then. Obviously, he's killed in battle, and when they're about to, if you read later in the chapter, when they're about to capture Jehoshaphat, they realize, hey, this isn't the king of Israel, so they turn around. You'll find that in chapter 19, starting in verse 1. You'll notice, Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel, returned safely to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath on yourself and the Lord? But there's some good in you, for you have removed the astronaut from the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. God's gracious to him, but he did, um, he noticed he did a military alliance that he should not have made. You stop and think about it. How many people in the southern tribes that joined died needlessly because of his alliance? It doesn't just affect him. He brings his army there. God spares him, but there were people that died that didn't have to die because of their so you have a marriage alliance. By the way, when his son takes over, which isn't part of the lesson today, when his son takes over, what does his son do to all the rest of his sons? Kills him. Kills him. Sounds like a good son, doesn't it? Go and kill the rest. Because obviously if you kill him, then there's no, no opposition to take the throne. So he has a marriage alliance he shouldn't have made with Ahab. It costs later Israel. He also has a war alliance that he never should have made. 
But notice also, when you get to the end of his life in chapter 20, you notice, and straightening in verse 32, as they look over the whole part, in chapter 20, verse 32, he walked in the ways of his father Asa, did not depart from doing right in the sight of the Lord. But notice when he gets down to verse 35, and after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, aligned himself with Israel again. He didn't learn what they have, did he? And he makes this, starts making ships, these large ships. Because he does it, notice he's making a commercial alliance. In verse 37, God destroys the ships. They spent all this money and build these ships. They were built for the purpose of carrying gold and other things. And God destroys them. So notice his booty traps that he has is he does things, humanly speaking. I'm going to make a marriage alliance protection. I'm going to do a you know, I'm going to do a military alliance because I'm not strong enough or they're not strong enough. It's enemy. We're going to join forces. Shouldn't have made it. I'm going to do a commercial alliance. I'm going to partner with them. I shouldn't do it. Notice it's three different times in his life, but notice every time it's bad. I think it's interesting how for all of us, we all have different weaknesses. But you have to be careful. You may have succeeded and had it under control for a while, but you better always keep a guard because it can come back. We often forget about it. Samson, you realize after the first two times he had problems, he judged faithfully Israel for 20 years. Delilah didn't come right after the first two. He did a great job of judging Israel according to the book of Judges. Then he comes back. Always be on guard. Booby traps are always there. And Satan knows real well what can tempt each and every one of us. But like First Corinthians 10 tells us, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man, and God does what? Provides a way of escape. So here you have this booby trap. So he had a great background, right? His grandfather, his father, for the most part, do well. Uh, the backbone was following the Lord, following the Word of God, doing it. And uh, his father backslid. He saw the problems with his father, saw that he had this and died needlessly early beforehand. Uh, he starts off well. You remember he follows the Lord himself. He also then he wants the people to follow and he wants righteous judges. But he has booby traps that cost him and his people a lot. Let's look at the besieging part of it when I talk about the trust and obey. The main part is in chapter 20. It's interesting when you have this. Notice the situation. <clears throat> now it came about this, the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, and together with some of the Minyites, came to make war with uh, Jehoshaphat. You notice Moab and Ammon come from whom? That's from Lot and his daughters, remember? Okay, and when they came into, when the uh, Israel came to, to conquer the land, God said they were not to touch them do anything against Ammon or Moab because they were uh, relatives, so to speak, so don't, don't do anything with them. So here they're coming up against them. And it's reported to them in verse 2. They're coming around the Dead Sea. They're coming up. Uh, you want to know where that other group is at? It's basically, uh, if you've seen pictures of Petra, it's real close to Petra. So they're coming out of Eden. That's where they're coming from. And notice then what happens is that's the situation. So notice in verse 3 and 4, they seek God. Joseph was afraid, turned his attention to seek the Lord, proclaimed to fast throughout all of Judah. It's amazing. How many times have we ever had that happen 
we, are we in a drought in certain parts of our country? How often do we have people ask for leadership, ask for prayer? How often do we say, let's fast? We don't see it. But notice, it's interesting, they ask for a fast, and notice in verse 4, who all comes? Judah gathered together to seek the help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah. When you think about it, they didn't catch a car and get there. Every city is represented and comes to seek the Lord, fasting and praying. I think it's important we don't often realize here they're under, getting ready to be under besieged by an army that they cannot defeat. And they know it, and they seek the Lord. So notice when you look at it, this is what they're doing. Notice in verse 5 down to 13, they stood before, he stands before the people. Notice in, in before God in verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. <clears throat> and notice then what he does. He basically uh, says what, where their places are. O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not the God in heaven? Art thou not the ruler over all kingdoms and nations? Power and might are in thy hand, so no one can stand before thee. Who's in charge of everything? He just said, all nations. We are, and all the ones coming against us, you're over all of them. Recognize my place and recognize God's place. Notice what he does then. In 7 and 8, he then says <clears throat> what God did. Did thou not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel and give it into the descendants of Abraham, thy friend, forever? And they lived in it, and I built thee a sanctuary there for thy name's sake. Should evil come upon us, the sword, or judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before thee. For thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in distress, and thou wilt hear deliverance. Okay, so he turns the battle over to who? We're serving you. You've given us the land. You're the boss. You're over everybody. It's interesting what you do. Notice his prayer. Notice the problem. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou didst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Behold, now they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out of the land that you've given us. We didn't destroy them when we had the opportunity. Because you told us not to, your command, now they're coming to destroy us to the land that you gave us. Alright? So that gives us the situation of where we're at. And notice, I think it's interesting, does he recognize when you look at the verse 12 and 13, the powerless? Three different things he says. Behold how they're rewarding us, or verse 12, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? We are powerless before this great multitude. Does he have an army? He does, but then nothing in comparison. He recognizes the powerless. I, we cannot win. If we go against them, our strength to their strength, we won't win. Second thing, <clears throat> we do not know what to do. How many times do we come to that? I can't do it. I don't know what to do. And notice, but our eyes are where? Most of us, our eyes are on what? Our problems. We can't do it. We don't know what to do. But our eyes and trust is on you. Pretty good place to be, is it not? 
Notice then, it's also interesting in verse 13. All of Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Everyone is there. Everyone sees it in all are in. So here's the, they're powerless. So they stood before the Lord. He, as leader, he tells them exactly what's going on. Turns to the Lord for help. Notice then, in verse 14, the Spirit comes to speak through one of the prophets in verse 15. And he said, Listen to all of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude. The battle is not yours, but God's. Alright, we're going up against how many? You need to stop and think about this incredible multitude you're going against. Far superior, but it's God's battle. But how many times do we think our battles are our battles? Turn it over to the Lord. That's His place. And so notice then, He says what it, what it is that you have the request. Notice then the reason that we is just basically listen and then watch because the battle is His. Interesting in verse 16, it even tells you the route. Tomorrow I'll go down against them, but behold, they'll come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you'll find them in the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jezreel. All right? This is what I want you to do. This is where they're going to be. And this is what I want you to do. How many of you are excited? I want to go down, and I'm going to go face an army that's superior to ours, and they're better equipped than we are, and there's more of them. And I'm going to go do it. I'm ready. Isn't that what he's telling them to do? It says the battle is God's. Do we really trust in that? So notice, I think it's interesting what he tells them to do. You need not fight in this battle. He tells them three things. Station yourselves, stand, and see. you got to go down there and just stand and watch. How have you, any other battle they've been in, has that occurred? You think about it. In their lifetime, how many times have they seen things? Are you going to trust the prophet and the word of God? Notice it says in the end of it, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them. The Lord's with you. How do you know the Lord's with you? Because the prophet said so. So do you believe the word of God or don't you? You notice I think it's interesting. What do the people do? Notice the king in the 18, Jehoshaphat bows his head with his face to the ground and all of Judah in the heavens of Jerusalem fell down before God and did what? Worship. What's happened? Nothing other than he tells what's going to happen. How many of us are willing to fall out and worship and praise just on what he tells you is going to happen when nothing has happened? Keep reading. It's interesting. In verse 19, the singers basically start praising God with a loud voice. Okay, so if you're Israel and you're told to go fight this great, so we're all Israel out here, or I should say Judah, what are we going to do the next morning? Notice what it said. They arose when? Early. 
I was ready, ready, ready. Let's go out. I'm ready. Let's go. They go early, but it's really interesting. Went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. When they went out, notice then, here they're, they're going out, the reminder that you have. And notice the king stands up, Jehoshaphat. Listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord, your God, and you'll be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. Trust God, and what did the prophet of God say? Stand and watch. But what are you going to do? You're going against the superior army, and they're just on the other side. And you're about to meet it. It's interesting, but I think it's amazing. How many of you catch verse 21? He consulted with the people, he being king. What should we do, guys? And notice what they say. He appointed those who sang for the Lord, those who praised him in holy attire. They went out before the army, giving thanks to the God for his loving kindness. Who leads the way? I mean, the musicians and the singers, and they're out front and they're singing the Lord and praising Him. And who's the first one that's going to get wiped out? Musicians. Well, obviously, the first ones that the enemy comes against. Notice He consults with the people, and this is their plan. We're so sure the Lord's going to give it, we're singing and going to praise and go out in front of them and do it. Isn't that what happened when they crossed the Jordan River? In flood stage, when did the water recede? When their feet stepped into it. When they stepped into it. But if they hadn't stepped into it, what would have happened? So here, you notice, it's amazing. We know they keep reading then. And notice, he consults with them. And notice what they're doing when they go before him. Giving thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. They're thanking him for a victory. And they're going out to meet him. And not one thing has happened except for the revelation of what's going to happen. I'm thanking you for what you told me is going to happen. How many of us are doing that? We're under besiege, and I'm thanking you that you said I'll never leave you nor forsake you. When you said that, I'll rejoice under difficult times, whatever it might be. So notice then, verse 22, it's interesting. When they began singing and praising, the Lord does what? Sets an ambush. He doesn't set the ambush until he does. Until they do what? Stop. Until they start doing what they should be doing. It's amazing. It's also interesting. The Ammonites and the Moabites, obviously being relatives, they join forces and wipe out the other one first, and then there's a you know a, a bickering among the family, and they then go turn on each other. All of it because God caused it to take place. Same thing that happened, if you remember, with Gideon and Judges. <clears throat> so when Judah gets there in verse 24, all they see are corpses. So they go out and say exactly what they're told to do. They're praising the Lord. They're going out to face Him, to stand and see it. And they get there, and it's amazing. It takes them four days just to collect all the goods that's there. God rejoiced. It's amazing when you look at it. So here you have it. They're under besiege. They turn to the Lord, and the Lord tells them what to do. And they step out on faith, and they praise Him. 
And I think it's important for us, do I recognize my situation? <clears throat> do I trust and obey? And then praise Him. You know, they're praising Him when not one thing has changed yet. The enemy's still there. They're still coming to meet Him. And they haven't seen anything from God yet. But they have His Word. And so I think it's interesting you look at it. So you think about this, the trust and obey. Great background, but do we have booby traps? How of us try to do alliances? Do we try to solve the problems on our own and align ourselves with things we shouldn't align? He does great things about personally following the Lord. He has the being, having people teach the people the Word of God. And He also then has righteous judges. But then when the things really come, He turns to the Lord when He's being besieged and gets the people to do the same thing. And as a group, they follow the Lord and they have success. And I think that's a very good place for us to be. 